Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Welcome to Freedom of Species, we're a show that brings animal advocacy to the airwaves of 3CR Community Radio. Before us, you heard Sally with Out of the Pan, so make sure you check that out every Sunday from 12 till 1pm. And yeah, before we get into it today, I just want to quickly give a shout out for those who are listening in live. Uh, There's an event this afternoon, um, 3CR Radio Music Feast. Um, and yeah, a bunch of bands happening. It's at Brunswick Ballroom. Um, that's today from three to eight PM. Um, yeah, lots of lots of different uh, music music happening. Um, so yeah, find more details at three crorgau Today on the show, we've got a bunch of vegan sociologists joining us today. Um, we've got Alex Hill who's waiting. We're going to do a bit of rotating today to keep things COVID safe. But um, for my guest, do you want to introduce yourself, say a little bit about yourself, maybe starting with Zoe? Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, so my name is Zoe Sutton. I'm a lecturer in sociology at Flinders University. And I like to do a lot of research with animals, trying to think about how we actually bring animals into research. So what do we actually do when we say we're researching animals? Um, which at the moment means I'm doing a lot of research on companion animals and specifically rental housing and companion animals. Yeah. Um, and I'm Josephine Brown and I work at Southern Cross University. Um, and I'm particularly interested in cultural sociology, so how we represent animals and discourses about relations with animals and human-animal um, uh, structures that affect humans and animals as well in society. So, yeah. Great. And so today we're going to be talking about a whole bunch of different issues, um, bringing the research from all of these um, vegan sociologists. I'm Nick Pendergrass hosting today, and I'm in that space as well. And yeah, we're going to get into a bunch of different issues. Um, Yeah, not so much about what vegan sociology is about, or that might be a good starting point, but we'll also talk a bit about um, issues around designing home, city spaces in general and considering animals in those spaces. Um, With Alex's research, we're going to be talking a bit about vegan men and meat and masculinity and and those kind of issues as well. Um, But I guess it probably would be a useful starting point of uh, talking a bit about what vegan sociology is. I I guess I'd say for myself, um, a sort of a starting point might be using sociology to analyze our relationships with other animals. But I think there definitely is a sort of activist social change focus in terms of changing those relationships for the better as well. Um, Anything you'd like to add about that, Zoe? Or 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think vegan sociology for me, for a long time, sociologists have been studying animals and we often went over and over the same discussion of saying, you know, like, why don't people care about animals? We should think more about this. We should study this. But often you were talking to people who went home and had a chicken sandwich after they had these conversations. And I found we just had to relitigate the same conversation over and over again, where you would say, oh, we want to change things for animals, but not too much. So for me, vegan sociology um, was really about trying to create a baseline where we said, okay, as sociologists, we're really good at understanding the social world, understanding how power works and what that means for animals. What happens if we take animal use off the table? What if we start to say, all right, we're trying to reimagine a world without animal exploitation. So let's use our tools as sociologists to see how it is we're actually using animals now and how we exploit them and how we might reimagine a better world using that kind of unpacking of what we know the world looks like now to make something better. Yeah. yeah. Great. And anything you want to add to that or anything that drew you to vegan sociology, Josephine? Yeah, look, I'd say that um, I would, like it's a great description that Zoe's given there. Um, I would say that um, my previous work was in social welfare and I established a pet bereavement service and I had exactly those sorts of experiences that Zoe's talking about where the, the concept that we love animals was not really interrogated. You know, the ramifications of, oh, we love animals. I think most Australians would like to think, I love animals, but not it wasn't really critiqued and interrogated. Mm -hmm. So I think vegan sociology just takes that critique that bit further to imagine worlds of multi-species justice. Absolutely, yeah. And so we're going to bring in some points now. So this is, we've been having vegan sociology conferences for the last three years online and bringing in vegan sociologists from all around the world, which has been great. Um, and we're going to bring in some some points that came up on a session I really enjoyed featuring both, both um, Zoe and Josephine and other speakers as well. Uh, it was called Vegan Sociology, Situating Humans and Non-Human Animals in the Promise of Vegan Sociology, uh, which was from the Vegan Sociology Conference in 2021 uh, last year and definitely a point that Josephine brought up which I think is is really relevant to a lot of things we've covered on the show in terms of trying to take on the animal's perspective was your points about uh, thinking like a rabbit so would, would you mind elaborating on that a little bit yeah so I also have a previous life as a vet nurse oh yeah um and I used to um you know, help educate people about how to live with rabbits in their homes. And so one of the ways that I found was the most useful for people was to think like a rabbit in their homes because the most common thing that people would say about rabbits in the homes was that they would chew electrical cords. So to humans, that was the understanding we're chewing electrical cords. But for a rabbit, your home becomes their burrow and electrical cords are like tree roots and if they chew through tree roots in a burrow, they're enabling a safe escape for all of the the whole burrow, the whole warren, um, if if a, a predator comes into their burrow. So that's part of how I used to help people be more empathetic and understanding about what the bunny needed in the home and how the home might adapt to the needs of the rabbit. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I can definitely really relate to that. I've uh, definitely spent a lot more time with dogs, a more stereotypical companion animal. But uh, definitely when I was looking for new apartments, I felt like I was thinking like a dog in, in some sense in terms of uh, thinking about like walking around the neighbourhood around the apartment. Is this kind of an area with grass and that kind of thing that a dog is going to like rather than around Fitzroy, for example, which is a really nice place to live as a human, but is very sort of concretey and just not really a, a, a good place for dog, a stimulating place for dogs. Um, and so I think that is really important. And I think that also 
uh, brings in Zoe's research as well. And, um, yeah, I think a concept which, uh, like on a station like this, we talk about all different kinds of privilege, uh, male privilege, white privilege, that kind of thing. And I, I know something you spoke about in that session was was human privilege. I wonder if you wouldn't mind uh, talking about that, that a little bit. That's probably, I think, in a lot of discussions around privilege, that might not be the first thing that comes to mind for, for many people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we, we think about human privilege, or we call it kind of anthroparchal privilege in sociology, when we're talking about the fact that when you look at society, often human wants and needs are privileged over other animals. And you see this really clearly in some really exploitative relationships, obviously, when we are eating other animals' bodies and deciding who lives and who dies, that's very clearly us getting some power and privilege over who gets to exist. But for my PhD research, I I went into people's houses and I wanted to look specifically at what it looked like to live with other animals, what it actually meant to bring humans and animals together. And you find these choices being made on a daily basis. So the kinds of rabbit space that Josephine was talking about, we we have a, a scholar, Julianne Smith, who talks about how you actually live in a space where rabbits are kind of disrupting your order. They're disrupting the way humans like to place things in the home and you have to grapple with that. And I think in these moments of grappling, you really come to terms with the fact that the house is human space. I get to decide what my house looks like a lot of the time. And really, I'm making a lot of choices for my animals. I'm just not being made aware of it. So when you start to look at these kind of points where animals show you how they like to do space and you might put things back away, you might put them in the right spot, they might have to ask permission to drink water or you might need to get food for them. We start to see all of these different sites where humans get to make the rules and humans get to decide what spaces look like. And that is a privilege. It's a privilege that we kind of exert over other animals. We get to decide who is bought and who is sold and who has value. And all of that shapes the way that we live and the kinds of lives that the animals that we live with get to live as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that um, definitely speaks to, I I guess, yeah, I feel like going back to apartments, I feel like generally when people are working out a place to live or that kind of thing, it's like it's totally within a human centric perspective and then non-humans fit around that. So you'll buy a place that works for you as a human or have many humans are in in that house or that family or whatever. And then, yeah, the the dogs or other animals will just kind of make do with whatever they've got and and similar, similar to space faces a little bit too um and yeah maybe i guess going back to zoe for a moment um i guess that idea of designing homes i really like your points on that of of thinking about the ways in which again i think there is that human default of we set up the the home for for humans and then dogs or or other whatever other companion animals are around kind of make do with that space but um yeah how we can maybe think about that a bit differently Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I've done a few research projects now, most recently the project looking at how people navigate rental spaces, which is more tricky again, because when you don't own the home that you're living in, you have this kind of whole other layer of human defined rules that you have to live in, or you don't get to keep your house, right? And it's really important for you and your animals that you get to keep a house for you both to live in. But when you're trying to navigate that, people have all sorts of things that they do. Some people will sort of maintain different spaces so that their animals can move freely. And a lot of this comes from observation. So just spending enough time with your animals to see how they use space and what they indicate that they like to do. If you're not intervening with them in any way or if they don't know you're watching them, what do they actually choose to do and where do they put stuff and what kinds of stuff do they like? Can you make sure that that's around so that they can use it? Can you keep doors open or put stuff down on levels where they can access it? Give them choices so that they can actually choose what they play with and what they do. And all of these things can be really useful. 
there's very practical stuff you can do, but it's also a lot of ideological stuff as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I've I've found even just having a dog door for my dogs has been, you know, it doesn't uh, it doesn't make an equal relationship by any means. And perhaps we'll get onto maybe some of those more fundamental issues uh, with pet ownership, which we've spoken about with Zoe on the show before as well. Um, but it, it does kind of tip the scales a bit in that direction of a bit greater freedom. I I often think about the way, and, and even myself as a kid, kind of like laughing at the dog, kind of jumping around like needing to pee to go outside and not having a dog door and just didn't go outside and now I'm like yeah I just think about how horrible that is and and also thinking about in the human context I know like that is one form of torture of not letting people like use the bathroom as well and so yeah I feel like because of speciesism because of that discrimination and devaluation about other animals we kind of as a society look at those things in a light-hearted way but um yeah I think we can we can think about ways in which we can um yeah, rethink those things and, yeah, give give animals greater weight within the household or, or other animals. And I guess to bring in Josephine, oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, go I was ahead. just going to say um, I think it's a lot about empathy and I think sociology is a great um, discipline in terms of thinking about empathy. It talks about the social construction of empathy. So, in fact, we're taught and socialised particular limits to empathy. We're mm. taught um, certain subjectivities aren't as valuable as human subjectivities, for example. Um, one of the other projects I'm working on actually with somebody who was on our panel last year, Chantelle Bays, um, we're working on a, a fictional collection of other animal subjectivities. And the point of it is, is to really try to research deeply into a particular species for each of us and then write... Um, narratives around those sorts of different subjectivities to mm-hmm. really think like what's the perspective of the other animal yep. so yeah just to try to take that critique deeper and deeper and deeper all the time yeah 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 absolutely and i think going back to zoe's point about human privilege i think doing that is always going to be kind of incomplete we'll probably never quite get it mm. right but i think definitely at least trying to do that is better than not trying to consider their perspective at all um and i know a lot of um zoe's points have been about trying to do things as well as possible for companion animals pets animals in our homes but also seeing the limitations with that relationship as well but i know you made an interesting point on that panel as well josephine about um yeah the way in which we can do things as well as possible but then other people coming in the house might not share those same values i wonder if you wouldn't mind speaking that a little bit um yes i'm trying to remember what (laughs) what example i had at the time i i Um, i certainly know that with um with having rabbits like sharing a, a home with rabbits um the house rabbit society members that i'm connected to you know people often discuss how other people judge um what we're doing in our homes and how we living in our homes with rabbits like with consciousness of what their needs are and you know the sorts of things Zoe was talking about and space and um stimulation and companionship all of these sorts of things um but I also am aware that some people uh build like I know we've had certain powerpoints put up high so that electrical cords actually don't go near the ground in the first place so just adapting the home in these sorts of ways. I know somebody else who had um, some um, carpet put on that was, I think, wool, a wool carpet, possibly. Some kind of carpet that was um, safer for the hawks of elderly rabbits because they were rescuing disabled elderly rabbits. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess, you know, this is where these sort of um, conceptualizations around what is normal in, in homes and how we set homes up 
um, sort of comes into it. And I know that we've certainly had experiences where other people come in and they want to move the cat. I think that was the example I was using. Mm. Yes, a, a babysitter once moving the cat off the bed because she wanted to sit down and read my children a story and mm. my children being really offended because they'd never seen the cat moved or pushed off the bed mm. at all. And when I returned home, they didn't want that babysitter again. <laughs> um, so, yeah, just these concepts that other people aren't thinking carefully through, you know, how you might set your home up in a way that's different from the norm. I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. And there were some discussions we had during the conference. Um, I gave an example of being at a friend's place and the, the cat would come up onto the, the dinner table and would have a drink out of yeah, the water. That's right. And it was funny because so many people had that experience. Yeah. I'd never heard of that, but they were like, oh, like, sorry, it's a bit strange. And we were like, well, me and my partner, oh, we, we don't mind. But now I was like, yeah, well, of course you don't mind, but like our parents might feel differently and that kind of thing. So there is that idea of trying to do things uh, differently and, and trying to consider other animals but also the pushback from a society that doesn't necessarily share those uh same values um i, I also was keen to, to jump back to zoe as well in terms of um what is, what is your companion animals life like when you're not there there does seem to be a bit of interest in that with cameras and and that kind of thing people put on i was wondering yeah what have you learned from that kind of research and looking at there like what what are what would maybe some of the surprising things or or yeah what what, what is their life like when we're not there Absolutely. Um, I haven't done my, my next project on my list yet of, of talking to people who have those sorts of dog cameras. Anecdotally, a lot of people seem to say it was really sad for them to set up these sort of dog cams and realize that their dogs either sat by the door all day waiting for them to come home or sat down and slept or just kind of wandered around and didn't really seem to be having these active lives that they like to imagine that they led. But when I've been doing my research, one of the questions that I ask people to try to get them to think about their animals, because it's really hard to get people to think about their animals outside of their relationship with them. They can talk about what they do with their dog and what happens to their dog when their dog is there. But when I say, so what do you think she does during the day? Like, what do you think she does when you're not here? What does she like? What does she like to do? And you can see this kind of breakdown moment where they think, oh, I've never thought about what her life is like when it doesn't involve me. Like, does she have any friends? Probably not because she's stuck in the house. Mm -hmm. um, what does she do all day? Do I make sure she has access to her toys and things to do? So that's been really interesting to see just that mental block that a lot of people have where they actually don't think at all about what their animals do when they're not interacting with them. And some people make a really concerted effort. So I spoke to some people who would set up their whole houses as an activity course every single day so that their animals had kind of things that they could do and they had little like maze things. They would scatter out different treats and puzzle toys and kind of sculpt the day so that their animals could choose to do what they wanted. But they also had different activity options if they didn't want to do them and they needed that kind of thing. But it is really tricky. And we're facing this now. We, um, I've gone from a three-dog house to a one-dog house because I have a lot of very elderly dogs and I've only got one left. And you can see with him, he doesn't quite know what to do with himself during the day. And trying to think mm. about that, how do you create a meaningful life and that kind of freedom in a world that doesn't really allow him to get that sort of freedom for himself? Yeah, yeah, I've got the same with uh, adopting a mother and daughter, but the mother unfortunately passed away recently and the, the daughter's kind of like not quite sure of herself now. So it, it, it is kind of sad, but it, it does go back to that issue of thinking things in a human-centric way. So when you go out, you're just focused on your life and you don't kind of think about, well, what, what are they actually doing? They're sort of put on hold because they're only sort of useful or thought about when they're in, in the human um, context. So we better go for a song and bring Alex in. So we'll have uh, Zoe will sub out, but we'll be back 
back in for the for the third uh, section. Uh, we're going to play a song with Josephine has picked. I always forget to mention this. I will mention up front. There is some swearing, some explicit language, etc. Do, do give a, a note about that. Um, but yeah, it's called "Eat Your Salad" by City Zenny. Um, yeah, we'll definitely discuss it after. But is, is there anything you'd like to say before we get into the song, um, Josephine? Um, no, I'd be really happy to discuss it afterwards. Yep, okay, no worries. We'll be back with more very soon. Instead of meat, I eat veggies and pussy. I like them both fresh, like them both juicy. I ride my bicycle to work instead of a car. All of my groceries are divided by weight and stored in glass jars. Got my reusable bag, that swag, my flex, my flag Zero waste, that is my jam, save fuel and sell your truck The karma comes for free and so does luck All aboard the green Titanic, let's sail the world and then cruise the Atlantic No ice in the way, no need to panic, all the signs are there, let's go organic Oh, when you eat your veggies, baby, think of me Let's go, get your trash can, no pick a plan And sort through it, bend over, then jiggle that peach You're recycling while I'm loving those cheeks I'm a beast instead of a killer, forget the hot dogs Cause my sausage is bigger Three, two, one, all the girls go echo If you want your man stung longer than a gecko Miss 3CR's broadcast of the inaugural historic first Trans Pride March Melbourne on Sunday 13 November? Perhaps you want to break a binary and listen to it again. Well, either way, you can. It's now available for listening at 3cr.org.au, Trans Pride March Melbourne. Turn it up, feeling that beacon under me, keeping on it all night. Join in 
the historic occasion and support our trans and gender diverse communities here in Nam. 3CR Radical Radio, proudly supporting trans and gender diverse people as part of diversity in Nam. 3cr.org.au, Trans Pride March, Melbourne. Welcome back to Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio. We've had a bit of a, a substitution in and out of the studio. Uh, welcome to the show, Alex Hill. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Yeah, but we're going to get into some of Alex's research around vegan men. Um, but before before um, before that, we heard "Eat Your Salad" by Citizeni, which we're going to discuss a bit, and also I'm sure link it into Alex's research as well. Um, yeah, this is the song you've chosen, Josephine. So yeah, anything you'd like to say about the song? Um, look, I love this song because um, one of my research areas is cisgendered masculinities mm. um, and I'm really interested in mapping across time how discourses change and how masculinity is associated with particular items, um, with particular subject positions um, and with, um, you know, classed and um, race kind of discourses. So... I, I mean, I just thought this is a really fun song, and I think it's really interesting that this is what's been. This was at, a, at the Eurovision Song Contest this year with Latvia, um, and I just thought it was really interesting that this was this discourse being promoted. That it's cool to be green. It's it's hot to be green. Um, the video is something I would love to write an academic paper on. It's so fascinating. It looks at date shows. So. You know, just these whole heteronormative stories around what it means to be a man is really of interest to me. I wrote a paper about um, how that can also be a class issue and how men of working class tend to be more closely associated with the sort of brutality and animality around the violence that we often inflict on other animals, especially structural violence. Mm. Um, So, you know, these days thinking of slaughterhouses um, and how men of an, of other classes have this, um, you know, histories of hunting and things like this, this distant thing of violence towards other animals, but there's still this gap between them and the actual violence. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm really interested in those things. So to me, this is just a new discourse that's, you know, becoming visible in 2022. And so was the class issue being that lower class people more, or lower class men are more likely to work at slaughterhouses? Is that And that the- lower class men are more closely associated with the animal themselves. Mm. Mm, that okay. The lower class male body is, you know, considered more animalistic as well yeah. and more associated with secrecy and, and bloodiness. I was actually looking at um, poaching and um, poaching on... Um, you know, lands in England compared to aristocratic sort of the ownership of land and that assumption of ownership of land by aristocrats compared to the secrecy and the nighttime work of poaching, which was survival for families. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I just – there's a, these links there. And I think we often don't talk about class anymore. I think that's very yeah. true. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess also with that 
uh, like animal uh, slaughter, often it might be there still might be those connections between meat and masculinity, but higher class men might more express that through consumption Absolutely. rather than production. I yes, guess. Yeah. and particular yeah. items. I mean, just even you know the possession of guns, for mm. example, and trophy hunting and these sorts of things. So these items that are associated with the the wealthy man, compared to yes, as you say, the men that are working class and the men that are more closely associated with the actual brutal violence of the death of other animals which still continues today yeah Yeah, absolutely and i know alex like me only hearing this song for the first time uh, pretty recently (laughs) thanks to josephine but um yeah and any comments on 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 the song or how it might relate to your research or anything like that yeah yeah totally i mean listening to the lyrics it speaks to what i think is most often said in western post-industrial societies which is instead of i eat veggies it's i eat meat instead of um dialogues about meat being associated with virility and all these things and here it's being replaced with veggies so the fact that a song like this was even produced in the first place i think speaks to the counter discourses that are sort of coming out at the moment yeah yeah absolutely and i guess getting into your research on on vegan men i think there's um obviously there's all different ways that that men can do veganism but i feel like some of the perhaps like loudest voices or most um celebrated or biggest platforms that kind of thing it kind of feels like a little bit similar to this song it's it's challenging aspects of like hegemonic masculinity or dominant masculinity in terms of like eating meat is often been associated with that so the vegan men just by being vegan you are kind of challenging aspects of that but it seems like there's almost like an overcompensation going don't worry i'm conforming in all these other ways and i think perhaps this song i'm not eating meat but i am still getting with women or whatever the case may be so yeah it kind of seems like yeah, it's a challenge, but it's also really going above and beyond to kind of reinforce other gender norms, I guess. Totally. I would argue that it's reinscribing those norms. There are so many reasons why people might use rhetoric like that, might try and show themselves off in um, an Instagram photo with their shirt off and uh, with an eggplant in hand or something like that. All these sort of like very, um, you might argue, like hyper-masculine performances. Mm -hmm. But perhaps in doing so something is lost. I mean, veganism historically has been grounded in the rights of women and maybe by trying to uh, mansplain veganism through a photo like that or advocating rationality in discussions that you have with um, omnis and that sort of thing, like, it's tricky. The stigma produces the overreaction of masculinity, but in doing so, the stigma also produces a sort of veganism that is in a few ways, I would argue, problematic. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And definitely your your talk at the recent vegan sociology conference kind of reminded me of uh, many years ago being at a, it was an animal rights and feminism workshop. And yeah, a bunch of um, people who were kind of part of the animal animal rights group I was a part of, um, yeah, specifically the vegan men there, we're talking about their experiences of kind of being out as a vegan at work and those kind of things and, and like how that was interpreted and when it was brought up and those kind of things. And yeah, the people who we kind of were working with the feminist group were saying it kind of sounds like it's kind of a similar thing to coming out as gay, for example. Like it kind of sounds like you're using kind of similar language. And it was interesting to see that also came up within your research that you presented. But yeah, do you want to talk a bit about that connection? Certainly. So um, I spoke with 10 uh, participants from, uh, across Australia and I wasn't originally interested in um, sexuality. I was focused on um, veganism and masculinity um, and... You know, using standpoint three, that's something that I felt that I could talk about. But 
three or four of my interviews brought up themselves that the experience of coming out as gay was very similar. And in almost every case, they described coming out as vegan as more confronting to their families. Hmm. They were describing um, their families being sort of propelled away from them almost by that force field. And um, others spoke about how having come out the first time it made the second coming out quite a lot easier. So there are these definite sort of like reactions that you get from coming out as vegan. I think that um, perhaps there is a correlation there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I guess I, I think back to, I don't know if either of you watched the show Friends. Uh, this is quite an old reference now, but, and it's definitely not the only show that does this, but looking back on it now, like it was, I think, 1990s show, but just so many of the jokes are based around uh, like men not being masculine enough and that being equated with being gay as well. So that sort of, yeah, that, uh, that, that sort of thing, which it, it maybe, yeah, I, I think we'd be less likely to see such a popular show doing that now i think there has been progress but obviously these ideas sort of hang around to some extent yeah 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 yeah, absolutely yeah um and josephine do you have any questions for i I actually one thing i was actually keen to talk about um just based on your your talk was um soy boys will be boys and so uh not everyone be familiar with that that language but i guess that's sort of getting at uh getting at some of the issues you're getting at too here no totally i mean soy boy is just such a fantastically loaded word isn't it uh we have the boy side of it which infantilizes masculinity which treats some men as lesser compared with the hegemony of other men so that's obviously quite loaded in of itself but then you bring soy into it you bring the ghost of what a lot of uh, people that eat me talk about as um the estrogen in soy which obviously we all know is a bit of a myth but you also carry with it a lot of racism in australia historically in australia race has been significantly bound up with dialogues about vegetarianism i mean you have discussions of Um, people coming in from Asia as the vegetarian's friend and some really, um, frankly, disgusting newspaper articles that come out from around that time as well. So soy boy is just such a very neat way to discuss these hierarchies that constitute our societies and leveraging that sort of terminology to either describe someone as a soy boy. There's a lot going on there, but then it's reclaimed in a way as well. So it's a really tricky politics just surrounding that term, I think. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and just going back to the the conference, this year's conference, the Vegan Sociology Conference, one point that really stood out to me, this was from Victoria Brockett, um, a recent study, um, 3% of the US, uh, 3% of people in the US are overall a vegan, um, but 8% of, of black people, of African-American people in the US are vegan. So it's sort of nearly three times as many, and I think that sort of goes against... Yeah, I feel like there's sometimes, particularly in anti-vegan arguments, there's sort of a caricature as veganism as a white thing, which I think, yeah, obviously there are issues of racism and, and sexism, as you touched on, in the vegan movement. But also, yeah, I think that narrative really leaves out many vegans of colour as well, which I guess that sort of feeds into what you mentioned, yeah. Yeah, yeah certainly. I mean, yeah. the most important thing is to listen to black vegan voices. Mm-hmm. And if by talking to a vegan you say that veganism erases all these voices you yourself are being just as epistemologically violent in your language. Mm. So maybe doing some research first would be a good way to go about it, but that is certainly not to say that veganism doesn't have a whiteness problem. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. I wanted to throw it over to Josephine. Do you have any either questions for Alex or any any of your own research you want to bring in here? Look, I'm just really interested in relational hierarchies because in everything we're talking about, we're actually talking about between men. 
Um, so I just really wanted to highlight that. And I wondered um, how your research has sort of come across those sort of hierarchies between men, because when we're saying, can I attain masculinity or is this an appropriate attainment of masculinity, um, as you say about this song, you know, in one way it contests masculinity and in another way it violently reaffirms it by saying, I'm a heterosexual, you know, I'm heterosexual but being green is cool. So I'm just wondering if those sorts of stories came out from some of the people you interviewed? Yeah, certainly. I mean, to me, it seems like there's almost this hegemonic vegan masculinity, which I'm calling uh, in my research everyday hegemonism. So you have the hegan archetype, someone who has the big muscles, who shows off, who uh, might swear a few times in their cookbook, uh, that sort of thing. But it's not all like that. It's more of a everyday sort of expressing logic in your conversations with have, you're having with people, talking about cognitive dissonance, talking about lots of different arguments, and then, you know, also thinking about veganism as a battleground. And so I think when we frame it that way, we perhaps do so at the exclusion of a lot of different ways of performing your vegan masculinity. Maybe using emotion isn't as well regarded as a vegan man, but... You know, surely that should be fine as well. We shouldn't all have to think about cognitive dissonance. It's important, but if we're all using that language to describe veganism, then we're still feeding into the same sort of dualism of rationality and emotion that has been subject of so much feminist critique mm. over the years. Mm. So I think there were definitely variations between how people responded to these ideas, but oh, gosh, it was hard not to see the hegemony there. It was hard not to see the focus on argumentation and also appropriating hierarchies. You know, talking to women about vegan activism because they saw a link between my interviewees, um, a link between a female cow and a female woman and a maternal instinct that's there. They, you know, saw as similar. I would argue that's almost appropriating, appropriating patriarchy to advocate against anthroparchy, but that's a big discussion. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think there are like, there are both, I think elements of, in a way like oppression to some extent of being, of being a vegan man in terms of veganism goes against gender norms for men more than it does for traditional gender norms for women in terms of uh, gender norms for women being around being caring and empathetic and a kind of veganism kind of fits with that so there's probably like less pushback but I also think there are a lot of privileges as well in terms of I think like male vegans might be more likely to be perceived as more rational just as the fact of being men and I've definitely had that experience of speaking at an event where apparently there was someone who would always sort of kick up a fuss and ask contrary questions but then it, when it was myself another vegan man speaking they were silent didn't raise those same critiques so it was less likely to be dismissed as emotional and those kind of things as well so this yeah there's definitely a lot of a lot of complex things happening there for sure I wondered how much also you had, um, you know, that phrase vegan for the animals, because I know that there's, you know, there's when we speak about veganism with our friends, there's a lot of conversation about um, health Mm. and, you know, like going vegan as a man Mm. for your health and this Mm. muscular culture on Instagram and things like that. Mm. So did you have much conversation around the health discourse versus the for the animals kind of discourses? I might have to give a frustrating question, a frustrating answer, rather. What I found was, even though I didn't speak to um, a uniform cohort of people that just went vegan uh, for the animals or their health and the environment, um, I spoke to some people who went for their health, some people who went for the animals. Everyone I spoke to believed in all the arguments. 
So I think there's this effect where people go vegan, are subsequently exposed to all these other dialogues about the environment, about animals, about health, whatever. And so then they themselves begin to sort of believe them and argue for them. So I find it hard to answer your question because Mm. I didn't find that there was those distinctions. Like perhaps if you speak to someone who's vegan um, and went vegan last week, you might be able to have a more compelling response. But everyone I spoke to had such a, a pervasive knowledge of all of those arguments, which I found really weird. Do you know what I find interesting about that? Um, I, I've been involved in the House Rabbit Society for like 30, 20, 20 or 30 years. And one of the fascinating things, um, the head of that group from Sydney, I was originally the head from Melbourne, one of the fascinating things she pointed out was that so many people who brought an, a rabbit into their house then became vegetarian Mm. and then started to move towards veganism. Mm. And it was absolutely profound. Like when she actually started giving me the statistics on it, we were amazed and we were saying we should do research on that because it's like having that relationship Mm. with someone who is vegan, which Mm. is rabbits, Mm. um, and someone who's very vulnerable, which is prey animals, which is rabbits, they just started to think about the world in new and different ways. So I'm really mm. interested in the way that you're saying, although people may have begun with health, in this case people were beginning with an idea of a pet, sometimes a pet for their children. Like rabbits are often seen as a toy for a child, which is completely inappropriate. Um, but And yet the rabbit actually created so much transformation in homes. Wow. Mm. More than dogs and cats, it seems, yes. because obviously there's, yeah. They're but, vegan. Yeah. Okay. We are running out of time for this segment. Um, so I wanted to hand over to Josephine because Josephine will be uh, taking off and, and making room for Zoe to come back in. So I just want to hand it over to you to, yeah, anything you wanted to say that you didn't, uh, if you want to give any plugs for your work for anyone um, who wants to look in more into your research or anything like that before before you take off. Um, well, I have a forthcoming book with Chantel Bays, but I'm not quite sure when that will be coming out. Um, Zoe and I also have a forthcoming collection that you are a part of, Nick. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's all. I, I guess that um, I, I find it fascinating how all of this is with so much within the general discourse. And I just love that this Eurovision song perhaps has made some people think more about this in popular culture. I think it's great. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Yeah, thank you. We're going to go to a song which we'll discuss this one after as well. I do have to give another note regarding swearing in the song. Um, The song is Brovine uh, by The Decline. Um, So we'll play this and then with Alex and Zoe uh, we'll discuss this uh, a little bit um, after the song. Um, We'll be back with more Freedom of Species after this. I am not afraid of Come in the cries, the from 
Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit emergency response service committed to assisting wildlife in need across Victoria. Our trained and dedicated volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned animals so they can be released back to their native habitat. If you see wildlife that may need our help, please contact us on 8400 7300. To donate or register to become a volunteer, hop onto our website at wildlifevictoria.org.au. Stay locked to 3CR. Welcome back to Freedom of Species on 3CR Radical Radio. We are talking um, with vegan sociologists. We've had Alex, uh, Josephine and, and Zoe is back as well. Uh, before, uh, yeah, but before this we heard is the song um, Brovine by The Decline, which I thought was um, worth, uh, yeah, well, quite relevant to Alex's research in terms of looking at this, um, I guess, pushback that uh, I guess vegan men get. Um, yeah, they're a band who actually, they're from Perth like myself and they're actually, um, yeah, I remember offering to like um, sing at a vegan festival we had and stuff like that. So very much into animal rights and the, and the song reflects that. There's also a film clip which you, if you look up Brovine by The Decline on YouTube, you can see and the message is even more blatant in the film clip as well. Um but yeah, I was wondering, I, I think the sort of punk and hardcore music, I don't know if that's your scene at all or not, it's definitely sort of where I come out of, but there's there's a huge, like veganism's like a really big thing there, and it's also very male-dominated too. I was wondering, was that at all anything you've come across in your research or, or not? <laughs> not that I can remember. Yeah, yeah. I think I would have remembered if someone had mentioned uh, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. I can't think about it, but you know. It's very clearly in the song, isn't it? Like, yeah. talking about how vegans are being policed, and in particular, vegan men are being policed in particular ways. And I watched the music, uh, the video clip ahead of coming in today, and, like, it's, as you said, very clear on there. So I recommend that anyone listening go and check that out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and it, it is very it is very niche, and so I think it's it's the, that there'd be a lot to write about, but also probably for, for most people, um, particularly now we're no longer in the 80s or whatever, like punk and hardcore music goes on and most people are pretty oblivious to it. So, yeah, it, it, I think it is there is a lot to say there, but, again, it, it is quite niche as well. Um, but I also think, I, I guess, going uh, sort of continuing on the meat and masculinity issue, I feel like, yeah, there is a lot of music like that, which is, you know, it is challenging that as well. But I also feel like, I guess, within dominant forms of masculinity, music that is sort of challenging animal eating and even macho attitudes or whatever, but is very aggressive and masculine is probably more palatable as well as more kind of consistent with that as well. And I, I kind of feel I'm thinking like maybe music maybe more like Morrissey who have a lot of problems with it on anything outside of animal issues but he does sing about animal rights and the music is much less masculine as well so I kind of also think about those things of like yeah it both yeah it, like a lot of people being vegan and that and that kind of thing in punk and hardcore music but also it being a very male dominated space and that kind of issue as well yeah yeah oh, totally. so, so it just seems like a lot of parallels with that sort of like Hegan kind of thing I guess yeah 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 I think in a way as well like and I don't want to overstate this, but I think veganism is an easy social issue for some men to advocate for. If you're raised to, um, quote-unquote, help the weak, save the um, people that need to be saved, uh, and, you know, you know a, a fan of qualities like rationality and argumentation and all these things, then if you go vegan for a group of people that can't actually hold you accountable for that activism, it might be easier than becoming a feminist. Mm, mm. Which is a bleak take in a way, mm. but I think it does speak to as well the need for veganism to embrace a more intersectional ideal um, holistically. Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think they're like whatever issue, whatever social justice issue, I think we often, unless we interrogate it, we kind of often take that baggage with us, I guess, in a way. And I've kind of thought about that even in sort of more general leftist spaces. There is that sort of like debate me bro attitude amongst like sort of leftists, like YouTubers, uh, particularly men as well. Um, and, and I guess that kind of can. Uh, kind of feed into that um yeah feed into that sort of like vegan youtubers and and that kind of thing as well of like i'm i'm so rational and look at these people are not so rational it's kind of very much based on those male traditional male gender norms i guess of course and it sort of makes sense as well like you go vegan and you're at the table and uncle gary turns to you and calls you a soy boy so of course you're going to go online you're going to go into youtube you're going to go oh how do i talk about protein god (laughs) it makes sense but Oh, maybe let's think about it a bit more in terms of like the longer trail that's going to have in the movement. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I want to sort of um, pivot towards back to Zoe's research around companion animals. Um, I haven't checked with you about this uh, like ahead of time, so I don't mean to spring this on you, but um, I would imagine you've probably come across this um, and I just thought you might have interesting, interesting things to say about it. But um, the recent issue of people getting their dogs, um, I think cats too, but I've mainly seen it with dogs, to actually like talk in human language using the buttons. Have you come across that at all? Or I have not come across that. Oh, this. really? What yeah. about you, Alex? Have you seen that? Or I have not. I knew there was some sort of interface being developed to try and talk to animals. I assumed oh. it was a little bit anthropocentric, but I didn't yeah. go much beyond that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, so there's a lot of videos where people, like, their dogs are kind of using, you know, full sentences or or they're at least saying, like, I, you know, I, I want food, I want to go for a walk, I want to hug, like, or whatever it might be. Yeah. But there's buttons and they gradually add more over time. Um, and... Yeah, I recently listened to a series called, I think it was called The Animal Show. It was on Vice Radio, but it was all about the talking gorillas, um, like Coco, um, and sort of about that history. Then they brought that in at the end as, as an example of animals talking. But, you know, how can you be sure they're not just kind of pressing them at random and, and all those kind of issues? But, um, yeah, I, I kind of felt a bit um, in two minds about it because I kind of feel like it's 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 good that people want to know like what do their what do their companion animals want but at the same time it seems like maybe we should be trying to understand them in in their own like language or their own ways of communicating rather than trying to make them do it uh in our in in our kinds of ways as well so um yeah i know i thought it was an interesting example but um yeah it's interesting but i i guess have you um yeah i guess have I guess that idea of communicating, like from doing your research, Zoe, I guess, have you found, I, I guess like people sort of work out that language themselves anyway, without those kind of pressing buttons and that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think everyone would like to think that they understand what their companions want with varying degrees of, of success and accuracy. I mean, there was a lot of controversy years ago when Stanley Coron mm-hmm. came out and said, actually, a dog probably hates being hugged. So maybe don't force hugs on your dog. And there was massive outcry from people who were like, you can't tell me my dog loves hugs you don't know so I think um I would approach with caution when people think that they definitely know what their animals want but you do need to have that sort of self-reflection and and you know I think there are a lot of ways we can kind of tell how animals like to use space how animals feel about us but it has to be a really critical engagement with you know they're forced to live in a condition with us and that comes with a certain amount of emotional labor companion animals who don't play the part of companion animal who aren't companionate who don't give us that unconditional love some of them end up euthanized some of them end up rejected so there is this kind of required positive interaction that we then read into because we want to see it as well 
which which is important to look at. But there's all sorts of things that we can learn about animals. We can learn about how they smell. We can kind of learn about how they tell time over the day. And Alexander Horowitz does a lot of work about that. But um, and I was thinking about what you were talking about, Alex, as well. Sorry, am I taking your radio show now? Go ahead. But I was thinking about your um your work around masculinity and anger and things. And I thought I've had this conversation with some of my family who are not like none of my family are vegan, right? But there seems to be this understanding that vegans are very soft and doing critical animal studies, often when you're in academic spaces and non-academic spaces, people will go, oh, sorry, Zoe, we're going to talk about meat and that's probably really upsetting for you. And I think it puts you in this really interesting space where you can use empathy really effectively. Mm. And I thought of this example where I was at a lunch with my partner's family and they had put the all of the dead carcasses up my end of the table and someone went, oh, sorry, Zoe, this is probably really gross for you. And I was thinking about how much disgust and anger were more accessible emotions for them. They thought that was an acceptable response to what they saw as a, a thing of them offending me. And when I said, well, it, does, it doesn't disgust me, it actually makes me really sad because, you know, mm. there's a pig on the table and I know that she would have sung to her children and there's all of these things she could do and this is how she would have interacted with the world. And we've essentially stabbed her in the neck so that you can have a sandwich. And I saw them just see a little bit of, oh, we weren't prepared to cope with sad. That's something that we don't know how to deal with. And I thought that introduces a really interesting vulnerability and what can we do with empathy with veganism and how powerful that might be in the way that we communicate it. I love that. It it speaks to how vegans themselves are viewed as the problem rather than vegans potentially going vegan because of a whole range of different really major issues. I think Sarah Ahmed's work on feminist killjoys here is fantastic. Mm -hmm. You know, you can think of vegans as killing joy in that sense. At that table, it sounds like you certainly killed the joy, but also used emotion perhaps really effectively in an activist way. Mm. It's interesting. Hmm. Yeah. And that, do you get that feeling where when you do critical animal studies, people kind of want to shield you from the realities? And I just think, I remember having this conversation with students saying, do you know how much time I've spent looking at slaughter videos, looking mm. at the realities of what this is? It's not that we don't look at it because we're critical researchers. We actually spend a lot of time looking yeah. at it. More time, probably. Yeah. Mm. But we see, we're seen to be weak and delicate. Maybe mm. that's just me. Maybe this is a woman thing. I think I've got that as well from, I mean, I'm a lot less involved in... Um, the uh, critical animal size community than you, but from family and from friends, I suppose I've definitely had that. I, I suppose if they bracket you in their mind as the issue that we need to step delicately mm-hmm. around, it may facilitate um, some sort of lack of thinking on their behalf. Yeah. 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 And I think it, it kind of going back to that idea, which we talked about already of like privilege and, and human centric, I think often when people apologize to the vegan at the table, it's like, it's only a bad thing because it upsets you or it could upset you. So it's like, and it's like, I always try and frame it. No, it's not me. Like I've, I'm very privileged. It's, it's like, it's the animal themselves. And I guess that that's, again, the sort of failure to see animals as important in their own right eating animals is only a problem because it's harming, you know, offending vegans rather than um, it, it's causing harm to animals. But uh, we are actually just about out of time. Um, lots more to discuss and perhaps we'll have, have you all back on again at some point. But I just wanted to hand it over to both of you for any uh, final thoughts. You can give a, a shout out to uh, your Twitter account if Elon Musk hasn't destroyed it by the time this podcast version is out or whatever. But, um, yeah, anything you'd like to promote, people look further into your work or anything like that. We'll put some notes into the uh, links into the show notes, some of the vegan sociology um, 
talks uh, they're up on youtube um if you search vegan sociology on youtube you'll be able to find um all the talks from the international association of vegan sociologist conferences um featuring all four of us um but yeah any any quick final thoughts plugs etc before we take off uh, you can find me on Twitter, and this week the Australian Sociological Association has an animal stream that will be presenting their ideas on different animal research, so you can follow us on Twitter, which is at Taza Animals as well. And finally, I think I just want to say if we're talking about veganism and intersectional veganism, we always have to remember that the animals are a really important part of that, so to make sure that we're always thinking about the, the living, breathing beings that are at the centre of it all as well. That is a fantastic way uh, to end. Um, I, I'm on Twitter as uh, Hill J Alex. If people want to send me a message to ask questions, very happy to answer. It's, it's very hard to confine something that you've been studying for two years into a uh, a short segment, first, but I'm very happy to answer questions um, outside of this as well. Great. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for for joining us today. Um, yeah, it's been a great discussion, and, and maybe we'll we'll do it again uh, at some point. Um, stay tuned for rotations. Um, check out all of our shows search freedom of species on your favorite podcast app the final song which does contain swearing is i spent the winter writing songs about getting better uh it's by proper and yeah i'm going to be doing a rotation show on this band coming up so um yeah stay tuned for rotations
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.